Welcome to Severance Radio, a Nevada Reads on-air book club. I'm Heidi Kaiser. Over the course of 13 episodes, Severance Radio will dissect a single book, Severance, the satirical dystopian novel by Ling Ma. This book is a mixture of immigrant family story, corporate satire, and global health crisis. It's also the story of Candace Chen. Candace is a millennial first-generation American office drone who meanders her way into adulthood and ends up finding a world devoid of choice and feeling. During our live weekly radio broadcast, listeners heard an excerpt from the audiobook followed by discussions featuring literary luminaries, educators, and subject matter experts. For our podcast listeners, we leave out the book and cut straight to the conversation. Think of this as your own personal book club in podcast form. If you haven't read Severance yet, that's okay. These conversations are meant to serve as an accompaniment to the novel. Though, full disclosure, some of our guests, in addition to making insightful points, do indeed hint at plot spoilers. So read the book. Okay, got your book? Great. Let's get started. As Severance readers know, the novel alternates between extended flashbacks and the present narrative in which utopia turns to dystopia. And in this dystopia, Candace is a stand-in for general Western malaise. Joining us next are Jenna Hanchi and Erica Vital Lazar. Here, these two scholars who study language talk about decolonization and dystopian literature. Enjoy. I'm really glad to be here um, talking with you, Erica, about this. And um, I think one of the things that we had brought up as something we wanted to think about in relation to severance and maybe a good place to start are um, the ways that we can look at this book through the lens of colonialism. Yeah, uh, with that in mind, and with your being a scholar of anti-colonialism studies, I wanted to bring Prince and Franz Fanon into the room before we begin our chat. (laughs) because um, all the while, you know, when engaging with this book, this lovely book, I could not get Prince's 2009 song. It's not very widely known. Um, It's called A Colonized Mind. It's in his Lotus Flower album. And he says, if you look, you surely will find throughout mankind's history, a colonized mind. And I I think that describes our dear Candace Chen so well. And then he continues with the verse, God's um, without God, it's just the blind leading the blind. And she is so blind. And Franz Fanon, you know, says something strikingly similar when he talks about a colonized personality being a result of a systemic negation by the colonizer, which, you know, always leads those who are oppressed those who have been colonized. Um, And it can be epigenetically. We don't see Candace Chen being directly, right, oppressed in a way that we think of when we think of of colonialist systems. But she's part of that lineage, right? But Franz Fanon said it, it, it causes those who have been colonized to constantly ask the question, in reality, 
Who am I? And she doesn't have an answer. I mean, she's searching for that answer. And so I wanted to hear your thoughts about, you know, how Candace sees herself and how deeply negated she's been by that colonialist system. Yeah, I think, Erica, that you're making such a, a great point about Candace herself is not directly colonized in the way that we tend to think about it when you think about, you know, taking over of lands. Um, but she is a part of um, the the coloniality, the general condition of coloniality. In fact, you could say we are all um, who are living in the world today under this condition of coloniality if you follow um, South American thinkers, decolonial scholars. Um, and in that sense, uh, as an immigrant, she is facing certain um, like ways of colonization working on her psyche. Um, as a person of color living in the contemporary U.S., it can be thought of through this lens of, of coloniality and um, the detachment that that brings um, from a sense of rootedness, from a sense of place-based knowledge and learning, um, from a sense of tradition. Um, and I, I like what you were saying, too, about the colonized being forced to ask the question, who am I, and not have an answer. Um, there's another colonial theorist that I really like, Ngugi Wathiongo, who is an African scholar who writes about um, decolonizing the mind and how, uh, as a, a Kenyan growing up, the education system was such that he spoke uh, his tribal language, Gikuyu, at home, and then in school was forced to speak English and was beaten when they spoke their traditional language. And what ended up happening is this reinforcement of um, one set of knowledge being the knowledge that goes along with uh, progress, modernity, you know, capitalism, and the other being backward. Um, and it creates a sense of like uh, split between, you know, um, who you are in one sense, but aren't allowed to connect that uh, to what is considered to be progress or moving forward in the world. And I think we can see a similar sort of split in Candace in a lot of different ways um, between uh, like leaving her such that she doesn't even quite know, I think, what is home or um, where she could find a place or rootedness or identity. Well, when I was teaching this this past semester, sheer act of serendipity teaching this in my marginalized voices in dystopian literature class and we were starting it just before quarantine and my students just wanted to shake Candace um, they were so frustrated with her rootlessness and yet they identified completely with it um, how she finds her identity in things, right, in material. So whereas we're always finding home in structures, right? You think about the family home, like Ashley in this section has a very particular place she wants to return to. And I believe Candace even reflects that she has no such place. She hated um, the family home in Utah. Um, there was no connection there. Her family in Fuxuan, she, she really has memories, but 
no firm connection there. So it seems her home is found in the things, which all of that material is connected to, to me, it seems, colonization, that colonized mind, right? We use material to colonize other cultures and other spaces. You know, you think about the beads (laughs) and the guns and the liquor and the blankets that we use in exchange for people's land and culture. And then these are the things that even in our modern um, seemingly evolved space, we should recognize as being mere baubles and trinkets we still cling to. And Candace very much clings to those things. And I think my students were frustrated because they saw themselves in that, you know, that that kind of um, frivolous, and don't get me wrong, I have many things that I too am attached to, but that frivolous attachment, they recognize themselves. Yeah, even so much as, you know, her work is um, in peddling that colonial material, right? It's creating Bibles. Uh It's also interesting to think about the way that material is both the means of colonization, but then also the reason for colonial systems often comes from... um, the desire to extract materials from certain places. Um, And when it comes down to it too, their whole journey is, is as a group with Bob is Bob is trying to lead them to this uh, sort of material promised land. Uh, He says, there'll be room for all of you. There's even a movie theater. There's, you know, all of these different spaces. It sounds like this, uh, yeah, like a, a promised land of materiality in some sense. Yeah, I, I love the way you think, sister. Yes, Bob leading the way, right? Like a modern day Moses and parting the Red Sea. And the sea is red as they stop and they, you know, go about the business of killing the fevered. Um, you know, Candace Chen, she's a bystander for much of this. And yet you see her become a participant in chapter four, Um, you know, just a very hard moment when she's trying to hide the discovery of this girl who's, you know, the only, and I say, quote unquote, living being left in her house um, because they're all in that zombification, right? They're, They're so inured with things that, that's the only item of humanity that is left to them is engaging in things. And so she finds this child and she's trying to shield her from being part of the, this colonized practice of, of slaying those who are in your path. You know, this is a Moses with blood on his hands, not only parting the Red Sea, but causing, um, you know, sort of a reenactment of the Red Sea. Um, these these zombies in Ling Ma's book aren't a direct threat, but they are an ideological threat, it seems. And they're in his way. He has to get rid of them. And Candace peddling Bibles, right? She's what Fanon would point to as sort of so deeply colonized. She takes on, you know, the philosophy of the oppressor. In chapter four, she does something very heinous. Um, she 
become someone who actually participates in the carnage. Um, we understand why, but at the same time, it's so disturbing to to have that you know come up, become a part of of who she is as she does not know who she is, but is fast coming to this understanding. And I, I think the section that we're reading is that moment when in Ashley's house, she is starting to understand the source of the fever is trying to recapture a place that never was, that return home. There are two kinds of, of a return. There's a, a restorative kind of return that allows you to um, come back to something important or meaningful or find something important or meaningful that's restoring you. And then there's a, a reflective way of, of that nostalgic a, attempt to return to something about something that never really was to find uh, this idyllic place that never existed and get stuck in it. And um, you mentioned that that's a sort of reverie that kills. And I think in this book, we can see a reflection of that reverie that kills um, that we see happening currently in our society. Um, this idea of make America great again is that reverie that kills this idea that we can return to some great or idyllic or perfect time or are nostalgic for this time that never existed because the history of America has been um, built on the backs of slaves. The history of America is a history of genocide. The history of America is a history of rights for some, but not for all. And so this idea of make America great again is is this idyllic return for a few that requires death of others. Um, and so it's a reverie that kills literally. And we see that um, that literal violence of nostalgia, of this desire for return in... Um, the way that people are treated in our society and in, in the, the anti-blackness, in the police violence in our society, in the violence towards immigrants. And then in the book, we see this just like beautiful reflection of it. Well, horrific reflection of it. Beautifully done by Ling Ma in thinking about um, this return, this group that Bob has taken command of, assumed command of is probably a good way of putting it by virtue of, you know, being the white um, middle-aged man of the group and said, you know, this is our mission. And to get back to this place that he wants to get back to, they have to literally kill to get there. Like you said, they, they tramp, they're trampling bodies to get to this place that never existed. Um, Part of the problem, part of the thing about this reverie that kills both in contemporary society and in the book itself is that it's not content simply with Bob himself having this nostalgic return, but he has to rope other people into it, right? And that's what you were talking about when you're talking about that scene where he gives the gun to Candace and tells her that it is her responsibility, right, to kill this child. Um, this fevered child, he's he's not content simply with having that idea of nostalgic return himself, but also with making sure that that others are roped into this ideological landscape too. Well, and just the fact that you you raise 
a very disturbing, symbolic item, and that is the rope, right? He must rope others in in order to, you know, get back to the very crux, the very root of our nation's founding, right? He sees himself as a founder, a founding father, and he's simply repeating the very same, you know, protocols that really founded this nation, the blood, the taking, the drive towards this promised land where no one really has access to resources unless the bobs of the world deem that they will have this access to resources. And then I don't want to get to, you know, the later portions of the book, but um, you bring up systemic racism and, you know, where we are in this country and how this mean season really kicked off with someone proclaiming that they were going to make America great again. And even with that statement and with your kind of bringing in the symbol of the rope, we can see a whole lineage of bobs, you know, kneeling on the neck of the fevered. And I'm sure that Ling Ma, you know, really was strategic in pointing out what has to be undone um, even as systems are breaking down as they are in this book. We can see that they're fomenting, they are taking shape in the old way, and we don't have room for life if we cling to those old ways. You know, what happens once the old ways fall away and something new has, you know, has once and for all the opportunity to take its place? Yeah, I, um, I'm drawing a little bit from... Uh, Alexis Pauline Gums and her remarkable work, uh, M Archive After the End of the World, which is what she calls a speculative documentary. It's imagining a team of Black archaeologists looking back on the destruction of the world that we know now and the survivors that came from it. And in the book, she asks, I, I, it's not a direct quote because I don't have it written down, but she basically asks, when the world is ending, who is it ending for? And what new beginnings can be constructed out of that end? Um, when the world comes to an end, whose world is it that's ending? When the things, the typical systems that we've come to rely on fall apart, it seems as if the world is ending, but it's, it's a world that was set up for only a few to begin with. And so in thinking about those systems collapsing, it also allows for new possibilities to emerge. And particularly, it's a place where we can imagine constructing new worlds that are liberatory for all and uh, not just based on rights for a few. Um, uh, Andrea Hairston, uh, another Afrofuturist author, um, once talked about this as, as working from the edges of chaos uh, so thinking about at the edges of chaos, right before things descend into meaninglessness, at the edges of a system where it's beginning to unravel, that's where you have the opportunity to, for, for marginalized voices to create um, new worlds that center all. 
Um, and so I, I think about that, you know, as we're thinking about dystopian books from uh, people of color and from other marginalized um, voices and experiences, um, that those dystopias can also hold the seeds of, uh, of liberatory visions of the future. And I think that we, we see some of that in here um, in the way that uh, Ling Ma points to how this world's unraveling. Bob attempts to just, again, like I, I loved what you said about him being in this long lineage of founding fathers and how he wants to be a founding father. He attempts to put the system back. Um, but Ling Ma's pointing at, you know, ways of escape that exist still. And what do we do when real life starts to outpace the dystopian? Yeah, what do we do? I think Ling Ma is really trying to give us the prescriptive warning that's at the heart of all dystopian literature. You know, what do you do differently? What do you do better? What can you begin to imagine for yourself that has nothing to do with old patterns? And I think right now at the beginning of this quarantine, we were all set to start something new. Now, I think we're in danger of becoming Ashley. We're going back to our pink rooms, you know? And that pink room, I can't get it out of my head. You know, that return to the womb, you know? Um, also that return to what we're comfortable with when we think of gendered positionality, safety. You know, she's clinging to those dresses. I'm trying not to give away the end of that scene. <laughs> but um, even as marginalized people, you have to constantly check not only who you have been, not only who you are, but who you are prepared to become in order to break out of the old pattern. You know, Toni Morrison, and I will paraphrase because I wasn't prepared to quote her today, though I always carry her in my heart, in my head. But she says something in Salah, um, something to the point of, you know, freeing yourself was one thing, taking ownership of that freed self claiming ownership of that freed self was something different. And so Candace is struggling with that. You know, Ashley is struggling with that. Janelle is struggling with that. They have a chance at freedom, and yet they have all fallen into this pattern of Bob leading the way, returning to our pink rooms and our places of comfort when perhaps we have to break down those walls, no longer remember or return to the pink. You know, there's something else to be done. Thanks so much to Jenna Hanchi and Erica Vitalazar for that smart conversation. Severance is a 2020 Nevada Reads book selection. Nevada Reads is a statewide book club that invites readers from across the Silver State to come together and share in the love of reading. Severance Radio, a Nevada Reads book club, is produced by the Beverly Rogers, Carol C. Harder Black Mountain Institute, and Nevada Humanities. Support from the Nevada Center for the Book, 
the Institute of Museum and Library Services, the Nevada State Library, and the National Endowment for the Humanities. Our engineer is Phil Corbett. Our writer is Sara Ortiz. Production by Lily Allen, Mir Arif, Stephanie Gibson, Kathleen Kuo, and Layla Muhammad. And I'm your host, Heidi Kaiser. Thanks for listening. Thank you.